Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Kirsty Woods. Now, Kirsty is an uh, exercise physiologist and founding practitioner at Metabolic Health Solutions in uh, Western Australia. And this this interview fits in very well um, with sort of this little two interview series, I guess you can say, about practical testing. So we have practical testing about measuring ketones, and now we are going to have practical testing about measuring your metabolism and your body composition. Um, and she is a, a specialist, an expert in indirect calorimetry and using this test uh, to help target solutions for obesity, PCOS, fatty liver, all sorts of metabolic health diseases, um, and also using body composition tests. So that's what this interview is all about. Basically, what is indirect calorimetry? What is resting metabolic rate? Uh, what are we looking for when we test them? What are we looking for when we test body composition? And more importantly, how can you use these to help inform your lifestyle choices, to learn what are the right choices for you? Because when determining what are the right choices, it's all about what is healthy weight loss. You know, anything, any intervention could lose weight potentially, but you want to make sure you're losing weight in the healthiest manner. And that's what these tests do. And that's what we're going to hear from Kirsty. All the different, all the basics and some of the more detailed nuances of what you need to know about these tests. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Kirsty Woods, and I hope you come away with lots of practical information that you can implement today to help you on your path to better metabolic health. Well, Kirsty Woods, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Thank you for having me. I look forward to discussing all things metabolism and metabolic health. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, we've been sort of joking that I have this mental block on on pronouncing the word indirect calorimetry. So I'm going to well attempt to get it. <laughs> thank you. I'm going to attempt to get it right throughout this podcast, but let's just start there. What is indirect calorimetry and why should we know about it? So essentially it's the fancy word, which I also had trouble with when I first started as well, um, to test metabolism. So it's essentially the gold standard um, that we have at the moment and it's through a breath test looking at oxygen and carbon dioxide so we can uh, see what's going on at a, a cellular level. Yeah, so I got to admit, it's pretty cool um, physiology. Just by measuring the oxygen that comes in and the carbon dioxide that comes out, it can tell you what you're burning in your body for fuel, whether you're burning glucose or carbohydrates, which on the one hand seems sort of like bizarre. How can it do that just from oxygen and carbon dioxide? But it's, I mean, it's that simple and that complex all at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So a little bit of um, taking a step back of how it does that is we know that um, when we burn, for example, carbohydrate, the ratio of oxygen and carbon dioxide is about one. So one to one, when you remember the uh, back to chemistry days when you have oxygen um, combined with food in the cell, it gives off your carbon dioxide energy and your waste products like water as well. So it's that equation. So they're both balanced when you're burning carbohydrate. When you're burning fat, you use more oxygen and you give off less CO2. So it's a more... Um, efficient fuel it's the way the body's designed um, and so the ratio of those two gases is 0.7 so that's how you're able to get an indicator of what um, fuels your body's using because, using because generally at rest um, unless you're in a critical uh, sickness state you're not using protein so basically if you're at 1.0 you're, you're burning almost exclusively carbohydrate and if you're at 0 0.7 you're burning almost exclusively fat yeah, correct. Is that an accurate statement? Okay. Now, to do this, is this the test that you, so you do, do this test all the time in your clinic with thousands of patients. So you have them sort of lie down. How long does it take? Give us an idea of like what's involved in getting the measurement on your patients. So in our clinic, which is a little bit different to research, which is essentially how I, I got involved with all of this is research, you need to, for example, um, rest for a long time before your test, it takes a long time, you need to calibrate it, which has its challenges to bring it to clinic because the patients, you know, run their busy lives and those sorts of things. So essentially um, what I've helped do at Metabolic Health Solutions is develop a protocol and a machine that's portable, um, a device called eCal, that is applicable in that clinical sort of setting. So we have 
patients fast for four hours, which is hypothetically after that, the end of the meal cycle, all insulin should be cleared. So we can get valuable data that we can retest over time at the similar sort of time so we can see see that change. They're in a semi-inclined position. Uh, there's some videos and pictures on our website for anyone that does want to see uh, with a nose peg on and a mouthpiece in uh, for about five to 10 minutes uh, to get a good data set as an indicator of what's happening at that point in time with their metabolism so that we can um, direct dietary interventions, validate any interventions um, and help educate the patient about why they may be having difficulty losing weight or struggling with their chronic disease even though their normal weight might have high blood pressure and those sorts of things. So you already mentioned one result that you can get, the the respiratory quotient, which gives you an idea of what fuel they're burning. But you can also get a resting metabolic rate, a basal metabolic rate. So tell us what that is and sort of what we need to know about the difference between resting metabolic rate, basal metabolic rate, because a lot of people use them interchangeably. Is that okay to use them interchangeably? Tell us a little bit about that result as well. Yeah, so in terms of the gases I talked about before, um, you can have a look at oxygen utilization to see how much someone's burning. Now, as you say, there's a couple of different things that people use. Basal metabolic rate is how much energy we require uh, to essentially stay alive. Um, It is quite difficult to get, particularly in a non-research setting, um, but we find because we have patients follow a a strict pre-test instruction protocol, including the no eating, no exercise for 12 hours, taking medications as per normal, we can have a look at their resting metabolic rate, which is how much they would burn if they were just sitting around all day um, with some normative data that is repeatable over time because of those pre-test instructions so that we can utilise it um, as a formation of management. Yeah, and that's an important concept about the everything has to be the same beforehand because if you measure it after a real hard workout or right after a meal, it's going to be pretty different than if you did um, after resting for 12 hours or not eating for four hours. So I think that's an important part that people can take home right away. If you're going to get tests like this done, which we're going to get into why you would or wouldn't, but if you're going to get something like this done, you need to be consistent about your, your pattern and your, uh, your, um, protocol before getting it done. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, now when we measure a metabolic rate, um, you know, there's this, there's this concept that we don't want to lower our metabolic rate. And I think that's sort of commonly talked about, which kind of goes back to this study that Kevin Hall did, um, about the biggest loser contestants where, you know, six years after completing, uh, this biggest loser competition where they lose, um, like a hundred pounds doing intense dieting and intense exercise that they gain the majority of the weight back, but their metabolic rate decreases so much. I I think it continued to decrease even six years after they were done despite regaining the weight. And that's sort of the the poster child for unhealthy weight loss because the metabolic rate went down. So tell us about that. Like why why does that happen? Why do we want to avoid a decreased metabolic rate like that? Yeah, so obviously... um in terms of that study, when we have a think, when we think about it, is metabolic rate is generally related to surface area. So naturally, when someone d- does lose weight, their metabolic rate can come down, um, but it should be um, not too much. Whether in those those um, participants, it was dramatic, and even when they regained all that weight and that surface area, as as you mentioned, it it didn't go back up. So what that means is they had to eat even less before and they were still gaining weight because of the um, such the dramatic uh, Kiko approach, so um, calorie restriction and all that exercise. So what's happening there is a bit of a starvation response um, because the body could have even been burning glucose. We, we don't know that. Um, that's not available, but essentially is the body thinks that it's not going to get its next meal. So this is from the genes that we have as from our ancestors. So what the body does is says, well, I'm going to actually slow my metabolic rate so that I can survive longer. However, in today's society, we always get that next meal. 
So <laughs> we still have those genes, but the adaptions may not be applicable, hence makes weight loss difficult like in the study in The Biggest Loser and why they don't have the reunion show. So that's once again why metabolic rate is important, but also we need to have a look at other factors such as their fuel utilisation, are they burning glucose or are they burning fat? Because particularly we find in those that are burning glucose as opposed to fat is where those um, detrimental um, metabolic decline occurs because their body goes into that starvation mode. Whether if someone's burning fat is they don't get those starvation signals because essentially what's happening is they are getting fuel but it's from their internal fat so that they're not um, the alarm bells aren't going off. So they're essentially getting their meal from inside their body as opposed to externally. Yeah, so that, that's really interesting. So a couple of important points there. So the, the first thing I want to go back to is, is you said the metabolic rate is related to surface area. So any weight loss, any weight loss reducing surface area is going to reduce metabolic rate, which I think is important because it's not black and white. It's not like any weight loss that has a reduction in metabolic rate is unhealthy. Right. So I, I think that's a very important point you made. So one question is, where is the cutoff? How do we determine what is healthy and what is not healthy in terms of the reduction of metabolic rate? And it sounds like you're saying fuel utilization is one way to make that uh, determination. So I, I thought that's really interesting. So, uh, I mean, is it, can you be so bold to say as long as you're burning fat, then, then you're not going to have an unhealthy reduction in metabolic rate, period? Or, or can you still have, have that? So essentially for most cases, I would be quite confident in saying that, but we need to think about other factors. So for example, if someone is losing weight and their metabolic rate's declining and they're hungry and they're losing muscle, which is another thing we look at in the clinic, that's a clear indication they might not be getting enough protein and they are going into that starvation mode. However, if those things aren't occurring um, then and they're, they're feeling good, they're maintaining their muscle, um, it might just be that essentially they're less, their metabolism's less stressed. So similar to an inefficient car which burns through a lot of fuel, having a high metabolism might not be good and might contribute to ageing. So sometimes you're seeing a natural decline, which is actually positive because their cells become more efficient, they don't need as much fuel. And they've done some studies in athletes where they actually have a lower than expected metabolic rate because they are so efficient. Yes, that can really confuse the interpretation. If you think of metabolic rate going down is a bad thing, but if it's because of a, you have to determine if it's because of efficiency or because of this adaptive thermogenesis or the starvation mode, as it's called, um, that happens with like the biggest loser contestant. So that's why you need someone like you who's got experience and knows the details and the nuances about this. But so, so what else can you get from this um, indirect calorimetry test? You get the basal metabolic rate, you get the respiratory quotient. Is that the majority or are there other things that you get from the test? Uh, just as we touched upon, we get an indicator for mitochondrial function. So we have a look at mm -hmm. efficiency. So from the 21% of oxygen in the atmosphere, we can see what percent people breathe out as an indicator for what's being utilised at a cellular level. Um, but unfortunately, uh, engineers aren't too happy with how efficient we are as humans. We tend to breathe out majority of um, our oxygen. But uh, so essentially is normal is about 16 to 17. Um, and the lower that number, the better. 16 to 17% is what we breathe out. The lower that number, the better. We've seen about as low as 14 in elite athletes. Um, and the higher that number means that there's likely some cellular stress going on. Um, and this has a big impact in things like fatigue, maybe the role of supplements, obviously exercise, sleep apnea, vitamin D, and those sorts of things as well. Yeah, so give us an idea um, in your clinic how you use this testing. When people come in, they get a baseline measurement, they want to lose weight, they're maybe struggling to lose weight. What kind of interventions can you do? And then when would you follow up with another test? And what do you look for to see if things are improving? In terms of when they present initially, we generally, in my clinic, I see people with uh, weight issues and chronic disease. However, we've got people using uh, the ECAL device for the likes of the English Institute of Sport, um, dietitians, endocrinologists. So they may use it a little bit differently because at the end of the day, it's a tool. However, how I use that data is, number one, see what's going on for the patient. For example, if they're having difficulty losing weight, are they burning fat? And majority of patients are not. So number one is I've helped 
educate them to say there is something going on and the good news is that it's not stuck in stone. So we can actually see metabolic changes within about three to five days. So we generally get a follow-up about one to two weeks to see whether our directed intervention has the desired impact. And if not, we have a look at other lifestyle factors, pathology, um, and it prompts us to ask further questions. So in terms of the intervention is diet generally has its best bang for its buck. Uh, which is also where uh, low-carbohydrate strategies come into it. Um, after a bit of stumbling around, I could see that the direct impact that reducing carbohydrate load through the hormone insulin could have on fat utilisation. Um, and then obviously exercise and some simple supplementation strategies, particularly if, for example, they're on a, on a statin um, under their GP's care, they might have poor efficiency in that where maybe where something like a coenzyme Q10 might help with that. And obviously exercise strategies to maintain muscle, um, make sure that they continue to burn fat and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting. Now, um, I mean, we t- obviously talk a lot about low carbohydrate nutrition on, on this podcast, and, and there's no question that low carb nutrition can help reduce that respiratory quotient down to 0.7, help with weight loss that doesn't reduce the the metabolic rate as much. But can the same be said for some low-fat diets? I mean, can low-fat, high-carb diets still reduce help people reduce weight without a dramatic reduction in their metabolic rate as long as they're not going sort of overboard, so to speak, like they did in the Biggest Loser studies? Yeah, so where that may be appropriate is some of our patients – are what we call metabolically flexible. They So they still have that ability to burn fat at rest. Um, so, you know, after their food's digested, they get back to burning fat. So that's where some of those strategies may be appropriate or more so they might be able to get away with it. And that's where energy intake, fasting sort of strategies, they they may have um, still have a more an impact as opposed to those who are metabolically inflexible and can't burn fat. You need to get them burning fat first to... Because essentially at the end of the day when we talk about weight loss, we really mean fat loss. So if you can't access it, um, you're going to have some of those detrimental effects. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we talk about weight loss as if it's one thing, as if it's all the same, but it's clearly not. It really is fat loss that we want with maintaining or building lean muscle mass in the process. So that makes a lot of sense. And I like how you mentioned about the people who are metabolically flexible. So, you know, uh, there's this big debate constantly going on, it seems, about the, the U.S. dietary guidelines. And and one of the latest things now is how it's for, it's designed for healthy people. It's not designed for metabolically sick people. But when we look at our, at least our American population, we're overwhelmingly majority are metabolically unhealthy. So, uh, the, the, that wouldn't that dietary guidelines wouldn't apply to them, and the metabolic flexibility that you're talking about probably doesn't apply to them as well. Now, is that is that something you can test and measure um, with your indirect calorimetry, saying are they metabolically flexible? Like, do they, you know, if I'm just hypothesizing here, if they ate, if they came in after a meal, maybe their respiratory quotient is 0.9, but if they came in after a four or five hour fast, the respiratory quotient would be 0.8 or 0.7. Like, can you see that type of variation just on the protocol? Um, so as I said, we generally have it so it's consistent over time, but for example, is I might have a patient who's been uh, doing really well, able to burn fat and they might have a birthday, for example, when I see them the next day, I can see it it flipped back. So it's an indicator for um, they're not still not metabolically flexible uh, long-term. I'm not as confident in saying is oh, um, that that made the, the direct impact. It's more so um, what's happening at that point in time. Um, but what we do see is that patients, for example, we've seen patients over, over the long-term is they might come in presenting not burning fat, they're able to get fat burning and the more weight they lose, the more insulin sensitive they become, we can use their data to essentially titrate their carbohydrate loading and they can get a, essentially get away with a bit more, which is once again the premise of no one size fits all. Everyone has those different degrees of metabolic flexibility and depending on what their goals are as well. So essentially using that data to end the diet wars that you were talking about before is, (laughs) is this person meant to be low carb or low fat and things like that? Well, actually there's no hard and fast rules. Let's use the individualized data because it can be very empowering for the individual 
um, but also as a practitioner, good to validate whatever you're doing. Yeah, I mean, great point. We really are sort of getting into this um, new world, I guess you could call it. it, shouldn't be that new, but it seems like it is, this new world of personalized nutritional intervention rather than just trying to give one diet for everybody to follow, but coming up with different ways to test what is the best diet for you. And just the number on the scale is probably not the best measurement for that, but something like what you're doing with the respiratory quotient, the resting metabolic rate gives you so much more information. Um, and not just about the food we eat, but when we eat and how much we eat. So when it comes to chronic caloric restriction, that is sort of a recipe for um, risking a decreased uh, um, re resting metabolic rate, especially if you're not burning fat. So one of the the other new kid on the block, which isn't so new, is intermittent fasting. Yeah. And there's there's obviously this debate: when are you fasting too much so that you're mimicking? chronic caloric restriction. So it sounds like your tool here, this indirect calorimetry would be a wonderful test to say, are you fasting too much? Are you decreasing your resting metabolic rate too much? So is that some another way that you can use it clinically? Absolutely. So um, a bit of a sh story to share. When I first started is obviously we um, you know, we looked at, you know, you got to eat frequently and those sorts of things. And then obviously some of the stuff about uh, fasting started coming to fruition so we're like well obviously let's once again research to practice let's put it in place and test and not guess what's going to happen so um, generally patients might be in a 16 type 8 we've had people up to 24 hours 48 hours unsupervised but anything beyond that they're supervised with their GP but I've had patients with all of those and it's really motivating for them to see that it might not reduce their metabolic rate so as a way of Overcoming some of the barriers is which is what I generally use it for in clinic, but also to dictate, as I said, is are they doing too much? Do they need that resistance-based training um, to negate some of those side effects um, and those other factors as well? Yes, you mentioned resistance-based training. And one of the concerns about, um, well, certainly intermittent fasting, but any weight loss could be if you're also losing lean muscle mass. Now, if you're losing total body weight, you may not need as much lean muscle mass to sort of carry the weight around, but still the concept holds that you want the highest percentage of lean muscle mass that you can have. It's more metabolically active. It's, um, it's better structurally and, and long-term to prevent sarcopenia and frailty and so there, so forth. So what other testing do you do in clinic to help determine, are you losing mostly fat? Are you maintaining or building lean muscle mass? What other parameters do you follow? Obviously, we do do weight, but once again, is we know that we, that cannot be relied on alone. So we also look at indicators for where they're storing their weight. So having a look at your typical waist measurement, um, and one we introduced a few years back, based on the risk factor for sleep apnea uh, and the likes of those sorts of things, is actually their neck measurement as well. Um, so I know you might have seen some recent research papers that show that fat can actually be stored in the tongue, which is why it can contribute to those sorts of things. So it's an indicator for that. We have a look at body composition through bioelectrical impedance in the clinic, uh, which essentially sends a harmless current, which travels quickly through muscle and slowly through fat. So once again, we can get an indicator of how those tissues are changing over time because we're testing them under the same pretest instructions at about six weekly intervals. Yeah, so bioelectrical impedance has, my guess is it's become the most common way to measure body composition because now anybody can sort of get a scale on Amazon that does that does bioelectrical impedance. Um, but it's got some downsides, right? I mean, it's, it's very um, sensitive to hydration status. It can be inconsistent. So what are some of the what are some of the tips you have for people who want to follow their body composition with bioimpedance scales? What would you tell them they have to do to get the most accurate measurements? Not to get just scales. Um, <laughs> and the reason I say that, how it works is um, by sending that harmless current. So when you've got your scales, it's essentially sending that current from foot to foot. So it only has a look at lower body. And because you're standing, and one of the biggest issues, as you say, is um, the impact of fluid is fluid can go from right your head to your toe. So that's going to have more fluctuations than um, if you get a device that's seated or whole body or lying down um, as well. So that's number one is try and get a whole body measurement. Number two, similar sorts of times of day under pretest instructions. So, for example, 
even something like eating, when you eat, you've got to digest that food. Uh, so it can transfer the blood flow to your stomach and, and those sorts of things. There's a lot of different things which impact it. Showers, they vasodilate the blood vessels, making them bigger. So that can impact the results as well. So generally the devices will come with the set of instructions, but there are a couple of things that maybe people don't do. And I know that um, here in Australia, when people go to the gym, they're not told about pre-test instructions and I wouldn't um, use those results for any um, clinically informed decision. Yeah, I see it all the time at the gym. They're, they have a bioimpedance scale, one that you grab the handles and stand on the scale. But people just walk up and do it at any random time before the workout, after the workout, during the workout, after drinking. And and if you're not being consistent with it, you're, you're going to get a pretty wide variation in, in your results, aren't you? Absolutely. And the other thing I might just say is it's not something that you do every day because what we're looking for is change over time. So as I said, at least four weeks, if not six to eight to see a significant change in those, some of those sort of parameters. All right. So now just a, uh, I guess a quick review about what the, the bioimpedance scale even tells us. I mean, it tells us, um, lean, lean muscle mass and body fat percentage. Those are sort of the big two take homes. So is that, is that sort of your big two take homes when you look at those results too, or are there others? That would be the main ones I would be confident in using um, in clinics. So essentially their fat mass um, and also their their muscle mass. And as I said, make sure that they're losing weight from fat, not muscle. So for females, as I said, you'd particularly expect some muscle loss with uh, significant weight loss. So around two-thirds you want from fat as opposed to uh, as opposed to muscle. The ones that I suppose might be good as indicators um, might be something like some of them do the bone mineral density, um, but once again is DEXA is the gold standard for that. And some of the other ones say that they've got, like the ones at the gym say that there's the visceral obesity is this. I wouldn't be as confident in those sorts of markers. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of things there. The visceral obesity, the visceral fat, meaning the fat sort of internally around your organs that's associated with increased risk of metabolic disorders and mortality even. Um, you really do need a, a, a test like a DEXA scan or the best ones are CT MRI, but those are very expensive yeah. and, and involved. Yeah, so the DEXA scan though has also become pretty popular for body composition because now there are sort of standalone um, companies that that do this that have the DEXA scan. Um, it's quick, it's radiation, but relatively low dose. How do you find that compares to the bioimpedance scales in terms of the accuracy, reproducibility, and the results? Just before I go into that, I forgot to mention is on um, some of the other devices we were talking about, you might also get a readout for metabolic rate. However, that is not your metabolism. What that's looking at is based on your age, height, and gender and an equation um, looking at, for example, your muscle mass, it plugs those number away and gives users um, essentially an equation to look at what your metabolic rate is, which can be inaccurate, particularly in the populations we're looking at. So if you're overfeeding or underfeeding based upon those, it also doesn't have a look at that fat utilization. Yeah, we'll get back to the DEXA question in a second, because in terms of that, this one always drives me crazy, and I want to get your opinion on it. The treadmills where you just put your hands on the heart rate monitor, you put in your age and your and your weight, and it tells you how many calories you're burning. How in the world, what kind of formula does it use that it can think it can tell you how many calories you're burning? I mean, it seems like it's got to be the most inaccurate calculation around. Am I overplaying this or is that is that right? I would tend to agree with you there. The reason being is, as I said, the normative data itself that they're using these equations for is generally on university students or someone who has time to do these sorts of studies and they're not <laughs> really the, sorts, the general population to start off with. And then it obviously can't account for genetics, lifestyle, uh, epigenetics, so the impact of lifestyle on those genes, um, muscle mass, all that sort of stuff. So it might be a good way to gauge how intense your workout is so you get to know your own numbers and say, oh, I'm slacking off a bit today. But in terms of using that as a premise of how much to eat and how many calories you burn, I definitely wouldn't be too confident with that. Yeah, good point though. Following the trend, if again, you're consistent with the protocol and it's sort of the same machine and you can compare your workouts to see, okay, I burned more calories last time, so I got to turn it up a little bit and don't worry about the absolute numbers. I think that, yeah, that's a good point you made there. All if, right. 
if you want to be doing high intensity sort of exercise, which maybe we can uh, get onto a bit later because it's not the best for some certain individuals and depending on their metabolic health markers and things like that. Okay. So, well, let's run with that. Let's talk about exercise. We'll get back to Dexa later. All right. Okay. So <laughs> let's talk because, hey, no, this is great because everybody can exercise. Not everybody has access to a Dexa. So this is probably more pertinent for most people. So, you know, we hear a lot about zone two cardio, resistance training, yeah. high intensity interval training. Like those are in my mind, sort of the big three pillars of exercise. And depending on what your goals are may determine which one's better for you. So how do you see those three types of exercises, how they affect um, lean body mass, how they affect metabolic disease and how they affect um, metabolic rate to, in your mind, say, what is the healthiest approach for people to, uh, to do for their exercise? In terms of the best approach to exercise, it's the one that they're most likely to do. So a lot of people I see aren't going to go to a gym, aren't going to be doing really high intensity exercise, at least initially, um, because they're quite exercise compromised, they're um, low in confidence and those sorts of things. But in terms of when each of those might be appropriate, so for example, if someone's losing muscle will have a low metabolic rate, resistance training is a must. Um, and there is some evidence to suggest, particularly is when you can build up um, to exercise to failure, it gets a double whammy because there is some uh, cardiovascular components to that as well. In terms of the cardio aspect is if someone's not metabolically flexible, they're burning glucose as opposed to fat and they go to a high-intensity workout, they're going to deplete their glycogen stores even further, which might send off those starvation and hunger signals. So think about what you might want after a hard workout at the gym. It's generally not good nutritious food. Um, yeah. So essentially it can have some negative consequences, release things like cortisol, the stress hormone. Um, so for those individuals, it would be better to start with steady, um, slow cardio but for those who are burning fat, there are some extra benefits in doing that HIT or interval type training, particularly in terms of the enzymes that target, um, for example, the fat around the liver. Um, but I see it all the time in the clinic where you get people who are slogging it out in the gym and getting no results, feeling tired, feeling frustrated, and it might be because of, as I said, some of those metabolic parameters aren't suited to to what they're doing so over here in Australia um, I know a lot of people who do those hit type classes and they're great they get fit but they don't get the desired outcome of losing weight and they might not feel the best and that's because um, some of those physiological responses I mentioned before and they may be better to do a resistance-based training or a low intensity of cardiovascular disease steady state until they develop that metabolic flexibility. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example. So, uh, and a, using that respiratory quotient that you can measure once you see them sort of creeping towards the fat burning that they're getting down towards that 0.7, then you could sounds like then you could say, okay, now if you want, you can start doing the high intensity interval training, and you're likely going to see more benefit than you would have before when you were just a carb burner. So that's a, a great utility for that for that test. That's really interesting. Now, you also recently tweeted something um, on your Twitter account about exercising fasting and what that can do yes. um, to your, your your metabolic rate or your fat, your fat burning while exercising. So what do you recommend for people to um, when they should exercise fasting, maybe when they shouldn't, and what kind of differences they see? Yeah, so this is a common question once again is when should I do my fasting? When should I do my exercise? exercise. Once again, as a general rule, do your exercise when you're more likely to do it. There are some extra benefits if you do do it fasted in terms of the enzyme changes, the fat utilization changes. However, as the article highlighted, it's quite individual. Um, so what it looked at is, for example, diabetics, they don't get the same enhanced mitochondrial effects um, and adaptions as the general population, and I suspect it's down to that metabolic flexibility. So once again, if we can test and not guess, it can see who might be appropriate for those fasting, uh, exercising fasting. So um, a sign without testing might be is if you do a workout and you're feeling dizzy, you get the shakes and you're really hungry afterwards, that might be a sign that you're not burning fat as a main fuel source. Um, so you might want to, as I said, eat a bit more regularly until you get 
to that point where that's not the case. So um, that was my take on on that new study is, once again, is we can't apply that blanket response. Yes, there are benefits to exercising fasted, um, but may not be appropriate for everyone and particularly those with chronic disease who have um, some metabolic consequences such as metabolic inflexibility like diabetics. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So those with diabetes did not see the same benefits to fasting exercise as those without diabetes. Now, what if you took that group of diabetes and did um, resting metabolic rates and respiratory quotients on all of them and saw, could see if some did do better than others within that subset and where they stood on those results. That would be really interesting. And then that's just one more utility for this testing, this to help direct people to the best type of exercise. Uh, so that'd be really interesting. Absolutely. That's why I'm so, um, I suppose, passionate about um, the science of indirect calorimetry, um, particularly in a clinical sort of setting, because there's only so much funding and time we can get to do these sorts of studies. But if you can have that client-centric approach, that's when we're going to have the most, I suppose, um, transformation within the N equals one uh, sort of scenarios. Yeah. So, I mean, this brings up an interesting, an interesting issue for, for the individual, like how many people can access this, you know, is this widely available, um, for people that almost pretty much anybody could, could access it and afford it and get this individual feedback, or is it sort of a smaller subset of the population who can access this? And then the rest of the population hopefully can kind of learn from that and decide if it applies to them or not. So what is your, um, what is your assessment on how accessible all these tests are for the average person? At, at this present stage, it's definitely more accessible, but I still think we have a long way to go. So as mentioned previously, due to some of the restraints in terms of costing, um, you know, time it takes and those sorts of things, uh, this testing was only available in research and on elite athletes, so the two ends of the spectrum, whether the people in the middle are the ones that need it most. Um <laughs> So essentially now um, like the likes of who I work for Metabolic Health Solutions have developed something that essentially it's the aim is to test the world's metabolism, making it available for practitioners so that we can get that wider reach and that bigger impact. So I know here in Australia um, we've got people using indirect calorimetry devices in clinic. Um, also the universities offer it. Um, however, some of them only look at metabolic rate. Um, so I would advise one that also looks at respiratory quotient as well. So definitely more available. Um, but at the moment, it's not like a blood pressure cuff. It's not on every GP table, whether I'm a bit biased, I think it should be because of of that valuable data it can provide and we shouldn't judge a book by its cover. We could actually see what's going on for such a big driver of weight, chronic disease and and general health and obviously performance for some people as well. Yeah, so it seems like it would be really helpful to have it on every GP's counter. So what's it going to take to get there? I mean, I, I would assume it's just a price thing, right? Or is it or is it really also like a knowledge thing that just not enough people are aware that it exists? What do you think? I think uh, there is a bit of both. Um, essentially is from a, a price point, some of the research grade um, devices, they're not really applicable for um, – you know, a, a small practitioner. So over here, a lot of dietitians and exercise physiologists are the ones who would be able to utilise this data, um, have their own businesses, so it might not be applicable yet. Uh, for example, we're exploring, um, for example, pay, pay per test like some of the body composition machines to make it a little bit more readily available. Um, but also in terms of knowledge base and innovation is similar with everything. Um, like, you know, I think we've may have been on this podcast that had a look at in hospitals there was all these infection rates and people dying and one guy said well maybe we should wash our hands and he essentially got <laughs> laughed at and now looking back on that you say well that's a bit silly isn't it so I think it's that innovation and knowledge base um, as well but as with a lot of things um, nutrition and science everything is evolving and and that's my hope for the the future but uh, small tips small steps in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I do want to circle back to the, the, um, body composition testing as, as we got a little distracted, but a good distraction there. So we were talking about the DEXA scan, how it compares to the bioimpedance. So I'd like to get your thoughts on 
you know, what the benefits of DEXA versus bioimpedance, you know, why would someone want to do a DEXA or why would they not? And then also what, what about the others? I mean, there's hydrostatic, hydrostatic weights, there's this bod pod, there are other ways to do it. So if you can give us sort of a lay of the land of the framework of what's out there so people can understand when they're looking to get their body composition tested, what should they be looking for? What are the differences between all these uh, tests? Absolutely. So DEXA is what I suppose is known as a gold standard, but as you say, there are other methods, but they're just not uh, generally available, uh, particularly in a non-research setting. Uh, so it uses small x-rays, um, which is why they advise, although it's only really low dose, about once every six months. So it is, as I said, gives really reputable data in terms of the fat mass and the muscle mass, but also um, where it's deposited in terms of visceral mass and also does bone mineral density. Um, so that is available. But in terms of depending on what your goals are, it might not be able to be done regularly enough. Um, and there is also an expense to that. Um, the, the likes of the hydrostatic weighing and bod pods, I haven't had too much um exposure to but what I would say is whatever method you use don't compare between them because they're going to be different you're more so looking for change over time um, and that consistency yeah that's that's a big take home right there use the same measurement because uh, I've got so many patients who like to do DEXAs and bioimpedance scales on a regular basis and the numbers are completely different so the first time they step on their bioimpedance scale is usually much lower um, fat mass than, than the DEXA. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. Look what happened to my fat mass. It's like, hold on, time out. Don't get too excited yet. You can't quite compare those. So yeah, that's a great take home that makes sure you stick with the same type of measurement. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So yeah. Now how, how often are you having people follow up? Um, you said you, you don't have them do the bioimpedance, you know, every day, you don't want to test it all the time. So between the resting metabolic rate, the bioimpedance scales, you know, if someone's changing their diet, what do you say is a good time frame um, to retest to say, what kind of impact is this having? And then if things are sort of stable and you've changed your lifestyle, um, how often then do you test for like a maintenance type program? Yeah, great question. So in terms of um, initial follow-ups, particularly if it's dietary intervention, which is generally first, is get a patient in one to two weeks later and we can generally see change to see A, if they're on the right track, but also help them problem solve because there is those um, implementation type issues as well. And then if something's like an exercise or supplementation sort of strategy, those sorts of things from a clinic uh, practitioner perspective, I'd most probably give it six to eight weeks. However, once again, is depending on the client's confidence um, and consistency, you might shorten those periods. And then once I'm happy and confident with the results, their results are going as intended, they're really confident with everything that they're doing, uh, most probably a three to six month interval follow-up. And what we're really looking for at that follow-up is, as I said, is if they're losing weight, whether it's from fat or muscle, looking at that metabolic decline, but also looking at risk factors for weight regain. So not only the muscle loss, but if we find that their RQ score, so their fat burning, the RQ score is going up, indicating that the fat burning is going down, that is a risk factor for weight regain. So we're catching it early because prevention is better than a cure. So we can ask the right questions, educate the patient that that is the case and see what else we can do, for example, to break through a plateau or prevent that regain as well. Yeah, that's a great, great point that prevention is better than, than fixing it once it's already gone awry. So if you can catch it early. Yeah. So how much of a change in the RQ gets your attention? Because we're only talking about 0.7 to 1.0. seems like a very small window. So I'd imagine even small amounts of changes might be pretty significant. So what, what's the amount of change that really gets your attention? So to make it easier, and once again, is I'm lucky enough to um, be using some software which converts everything for me, I have a look in terms of percent of fat and glucose. So we see people burning as much as or as little as 0% fat in the clinic and if not storing fat. Um, so I would say if they increase that to 20%, I'd be really happy with that, that to show them that A, we're on the right track um, and B, that the, the, the right strategy has been put in place and can help motivate them. Now, to get them up to the 
a textbook says we should be burning about 80% fat. Some people don't get there, um, but particularly for optimal outcomes, you want to be burning at least 80%. It might be a matter of time or it might be introducing another um, supplemental strategy with that as well. So when you say the textbooks say that's where we want to be, is that, you mean like for the, the healthiest version of weight loss, that's where you want to be? So in terms of physiology textbooks, they say everyone burns 80% fat at rest. It's the way the body's designed. Uh, okay. um, so what they're talking about there is, as I, I touched on before, fat is the most efficient fuel. It gives off the least amount of carbon dioxide and um, waste products. Um, it also provides that nice stable energy um, to help with, for example, mood for a lot of people, energy for a lot of people, and it's also in terms of um, health perspective, maintaining weight, preventing chronic disease, those sorts of things. Yeah, but again, those normative data were not done on obese patients with type 2 diabetes. So that would, they are not burning 80% fat at rest, but that's where you want to get them to. So I see now. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so yeah. we, we looked at, um, we presented at one of the conferences. We just did a, um, looked back at some of our data. Um, and for example, about, I think it was 70% of patients weren't burning optimal amounts of fat. 70%. Um, so therefore, once again, is why we don't judge a book by its cover um, because we're applying all these general rules to a population that doesn't fit um, fit what's going on. Yeah. So, so we've touched on metabolic flexibility, low-carb nutrition, the different types of exercise. You've mentioned supplements a few times. So what are your sort of key supplements that you think can help some people um, with healthier weight loss, healthier fat burning. Now, one of the big ones we see in clinic, and we're not sure whether it was um, the egg or the chicken sort of scenario, is vit low vitamin D, which has obviously been in the uh, spotlight with all the COVID things. Um, so essentially what we want to be having a look at, if it is low or borderline, supplementing, following up, um, seeing the subjective changes within the patient, seeing its impact on on fat utilisation and their weight loss results as well. Um, the other one might be particularly we see a lot of patients with PCOS, um, insulin resistance. They might get some metformin uh, from their G GP or the likes of berberine to help to improve that insulin sensitivity. I wouldn't say it works alone but in conjunction with those lifestyle things, um, that they're doing and in terms of improving that mitochondrial function, a couple of things we've touched on, um, the likes of coenzyme Q10, particularly for those on a statin. Um, but once again, a lot of people um, have a broad range of spectrum. They're just a couple of the, the common ones I might see in clinic. Once again is I had a patient randomly um, come to me. We weren't getting expected results. She explored a couple of things with an open-minded GP and she got put on DIM, which is helps with estrogen dominance. Um, and it's not something that I would have done personally, but we could see um, some of those changes and, and validate that intervention with some of the changes that we've seen. So interesting. Okay. Very good. Well, well, th I think this has been a, a, a wonderful sort of tour through the practical aspects of these different tests that are available that you have so much experience in. Um, and like you said, don't guess tests. So if, if uh, I hope, I really hope our listeners were able to take away all the practical nuggets you threw out there about how they can utilize these tests, what they should be looking for, what they can change in their lifestyle and how they can follow it up with measurements from these tests to make sure they're on the right path. Um, so anything else you'd like to add to what we've discussed so far? And of course, if people want to find out more about you, where can you direct them? So one thing um, that we didn't quite touch on is in terms of also becoming more popular is bariatric surgery. Um, and essentially what we now know is the reason they've gone from the ring to the sleeve is regain and some other health issues and psychological issues. Um, it's not that quick fix that we once thought. Some of that data is emerging. Um, so what we found is some surgeons are using this as a way to obviously screen for those who um, – might want surgery um, because they've also some studies have come out looking at that RQ score, which we've mentioned quite frequently is as a predictor of the weight loss results that we see in some of these surgeries. 
Um, so it might be a screening tool, but also post-surgery as a way of um, looking at things like compliance, looking at those who are at risk of weight regain, and those that might still need some tweaking because they might be losing weight, but essentially it's that starvation thing going on. They might not be losing it from the right tissue. Um, and we, we hear about it all the time um, about people, you know, as I said, is, you know, eating the wrong foods or or thinking they're doing the right thing but they're not eating the real foods and those sorts of things. So we've seen patients in the clinic who are regaining weight or plateaued post-surgery um, and not burning fat so it can help titrate those interventions um, down the track as well. So that's an area that is emerging and will be really quite interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. If you're going to go through the whole process to have this surgery done, be nice to know ahead of time if you're going to see the best results possible or not. So if this is one, and you shared with me that study, which I thought was really interesting, that the respiratory quotient was able to predict um, with pretty good accuracy those who are going to lose more weight. Um, and, and actually we have some more information coming out at diet doctor about weight loss surgery, a guide, and, and we're going to have a podcast on that as well. Um, but some of the surgeons who I interviewed, they, they consistently like to use low carb diets and intermittent fasting in the preoperative setting to prepare people for surgery. And I didn't think about this till just now, but that would definitely tip the respiratory quotient going more towards, uh, the fat burning to prepare them for surgery, which would then make them probably more likely to succeed um, with weight loss. But then also, as you said, it's not a cure-all. It's not like you do the surgery and you're done. You still have a lifetime of lifestyle that you need to adjust to maintain um, a a healthy weight and a healthy lifestyle. And so measuring with uh, indirect calorimetry could be a great measure for that in that setting as well. So very good point. And and that's what we touched on before is the more um, sort of in-house practitioners using this, the better because there's only um, so much the research provides a good basis, but there's so many different applications, which is also why um, trying to work on a platform for practitioners, because as I said, the, the innovation and the knowledge base might not be quite there. So if we can look at all the data we've collected over nine years in conjunction with what everyone else is doing and provide that platform to say, well, if this is the result, here's some factors, it can really help better inform some of the management of of these sorts of cases, which is what we're working on at the moment and the the biggest sort of picture because it, that's going to have the best global impact for the, the current health crisis at the moment. Yeah, very good point. Well, you certainly have a lot of experience with this and you have some great practical tips. So where can people find you if they want to learn more and hear more about what you have to say? So I, um, I'm on Twitter, um, handle LowCarbEP. Uh, the website, um, metabolichealthsolutions.org, has a lot of information not only on our proof of concept clinics, which is more of a research-based clinic where we help patients, but also in terms of um, public health and technology, uh, those sorts of things, uh, other projects we're working on as well, um, also some blogs about what we've been involved in um, and general information about the sort of technology. And then also... Um, if you want to pop my email on there, I'm happy for people to reach out if they do have any queries or questions about what we've explored today, which is, as I said, understanding a relatively new topic in um, those for those who might be listening. Great. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time and sharing all your experience and your knowledge with us. And I really look forward to hearing more from you in the future about all this exciting stuff coming down the pipe. So thanks. Thanks so much, Brett. Have a great day. All right. You too.